Shrink Wrap Radio, number 837, Dr. Elaine Leader on Restorative Justice and Spirituality in Prison Volunteer Work. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Dr. Elaine Leader, who I served under for many years when I was a professor at Sonoma State University, and she was dean of the School of Social Sciences. Dr. Leader has been working in prisons since 1995, currently doing victim-offender dialogues between people who did the harm and those that they harmed. In this interview, she's going to take us through a PowerPoint on her prison work. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Elaine Leader, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here, David. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I say welcome back because in 2009, um, I interviewed you about, I and actually it's episode number 200 and 209, and uh, I interviewed you um, about... The, it was titled, Because We Are, The Family in Africa with Elaine Leader. You are such a diverse person <laughs> in terms of everything that you're involved with. Um, I get around. Yeah, I yeah. I have yeah. a yeah. mind. Yeah. Now, I should let our listeners know that your background is in social work, Right. Originally. Originally. And uh, so today we're going to go through a PowerPoint about your volunteer restorative justice work in prisons. Do you want to say anything to set it up or shall we just jump into the slideshow? Well, let me just say when you said that I'm from social work, that was very early in my career. I became a sociologist and that's really more uh-huh. what the work of my lifetime has become. I like studying people in different venues and cultures. That's how come I did the uh, podcast, I Am Because We Are, that was the title, yeah. about family in Africa, because I wrote a book about family life in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And since that time, I've been working in prisons and also been a professor and a dean and so i would say that i'm a dilettante in many ways but always sociologically me too, me too. i can really relate to that <laughs> good 
Yeah, well, let's let's get into it. Ready? Good. Let's. I've got a lot to say. Okay, I hope our sound holds up. It was just being just a little bit wonky, so uh, let's hope we have a good sound. So I'm going to bring up the uh, the PowerPoint now. I think. Do you see the PowerPoint? I do. Very good. Okay. We're ready to go. Okay. Let's so, go. Shall I just launch or do you want to ask me the questions or what would you I might cut you? I might cut in every now and then to uh, make a comment or ask a question, but mostly just just do your thing. Okay. So I like to title this talk, What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This with about prison and spirituality? Because oftentimes, you know, I'm older, I'm almost 80, uh, I'm white, I'm middle class, you know, what am I doing going into prisons? And, um, and the rest of this talk will sort of explain it. So if you do the next slide, uh, Dr. Van Nuys, I yep. would love to begin uh, my talk. Okay. Oh, great. Okay, let's see here. There we go. So um, let me first say that one of the reasons that I do this kind of work, it used to be I would work in mental health, and I worked in uh, al alcohol and drug treatment, and I did foster care. That was all when I was a social worker. But a lot of what I do really is based in the fact that my father was a refugee out of Lithuania. His entire <laughs> family was killed in 1941. He got out in 1939, and he's the only survivor in his family. So I lived with darkness in my past, uh -huh. as well as the question of why do people commit evil? And so I started out first by working in domestic violence, and I was a therapist with batterers. Um, and then I kind of evolved into Holocaust education and taught courses on the Holocaust, became a scholar at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, did research on my family, and, and realized that much of my work is grounded in trying to understand why it is that people engage in criminal behavior that the rest of us mainstream does not do. And so that was really an informant to my identity. I came also out of a Jewish identity, which has very strong emphasis in the values of social justice, compassion, and caring for the stranger. We really believe in repairing the world, in trying to understand others, and to um, have a little uh, compassion, more compassion, so that we can help people change. So that's kind of a broad background of how I got to this. But how I came specifically to prisons was that I was teaching at Ithaca College in upstate New York. We had a group of high school kids who came up for the summer to experience college and we had to take them on field trips and one kid said he wanted to go to a prison so there was elmira correctional facility which was down the road wow. so i made an appointment went there and took the kids and when it was over i said to the warden who'd given us a tour 
have you ever had any education here in prison? He goes, oh yeah, we have GED. And I said, well, would you like anything more, like some college? And he jumped at the chance. I went back to my university. I said to the provost, the chief academic officer, I would be happy to teach this course for credit, but free. You know, all it would cost you is giving the guys three units of, of college credit. The provost said, sure, set it up. So for the next five years, I taught a course at Elmira Correctional Facility um, on um, Introduction to Sociology, which was the same course I was teaching at um, Ithaca College. So next slide, please. Okay, let me just uh, make a comment here. I had, you know, you invited me to uh, to join you and, and go, uh, I think, go San to San, San Quentin. And frankly, I was scared. I just uh -huh. could, you know, and I thought, well, they might take it easy on a woman, but uh, I have a feeling I would might be in trouble as as a guy. So I had no idea that this work went back so far for you that you had started it as early as you did. You've really been doing some version of this work for years. Twenty eight years at this. Uh, point wow! Wow! Always okay. in the background. It had never been in the foreground because I was being first a social worker and then I was being an educator and a sociologist and then I was being a dean. and But always this work permeated my interest. Fascinating. Of my background. Yeah, so, yeah. Slide. I'm gonna to try to make it the next slide. I think I succeeded, here we are. You got it. So the picture on the left is the Elmira Correctional Facility. And as you can tell, it was probably one of the earliest prisons. I think it was the second one in the country that was built. I might be wrong. And it's a very dark, dank, ancient place. Um, and I worked there for about five years running uh, groups, uh, teaching for the most part. And it was quite eye-opening and, and quite wonderful, actually. At first, I too was afraid because we have those stereotypes about people in prison. Yeah. But the reality is that as soon as we got into the classroom and I was doing what I usually do in universities, teaching, it was like being in any other classroom I'd ever been in. The guys were interested. They did their homework. They asked really profound and deep questions. They were better than my regular college students because they were a captive audience. They were <laughs> right. right. They cared about what they were studying. Well, then I, after a number of years, I got a job in California as the Dean of Social Sciences at Sonoma State. And for one semester, I was not working at any prison, and I really missed it. And so I knew of a college education program at San Quentin in California. So I began to volunteer there. And um, my experience there was equally um, remarkable. Uh, the brightest students I've ever had in my life. And I was... The first time I was there, I was scared, sure, in both places. I remember the first time at Elmira, there was an altercation in the yard and I heard yelling and screaming and whistles. And I thought, oh my God, this is it. And the guys in my class said, look, Elaine, don't you worry. We're gonna protect you. We don't want anything to go wrong with this class. Wow. So I Great. was very well protected at every prison I ever went to. Because the inmates, um, and I call them my students, not the inmates, 
were um, human beings and they were just like you and me only for socioeconomic and racial and structural inequality reasons they were incarcerated and uh my friends who might have done the very same things maybe not murder but drunken driving or any number of uh, drug possession could have done but because of social inequities most of the people that i work with were people of color or poor whites um so next slide please yes Okay, so my very first experience working in prisons was um, quite profound, actually, and I would say began my transformation because I had every stereotype you would have about a prisoner. And then I realized that these folks are human beings. And as a result, actually, uh, next slide, please. I wrote a book. Uh, about my work. It's called My Life with Lifers, Lessons for a Teacher, Humanity Has No Bars. And I had no idea that you'd written this book, that this was out there. Oh, well, this book uh, is actually used around the country. Um, You know, I like to write. Uh, Some people like to say I like to have written, but I like to write. (laughs) I've actually written six books. Uh, This was number five or four. I can't remember And it really is based on my experiences in prison. And the subtitle is the key. Lessons for a teacher, humanity has no bars. What I have learned through my work in the criminal injustice system, I don't call it a criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. that people inside are normal human beings who had early childhood trauma Almost everybody that I have ever worked with has had either uh, violence or racism or problems in school, learning disabilities. I'm going to tell you some stories so that you can see, you know, yes, there are people who are sociopaths. There are people who I would not want out on the streets. I will say that emphatically, but they are not the majority of the people that I have met inside. Most people who I've met inside transform themselves while they're in prison. And so humanity has no bars. Next slide, please. So a little background before I get into stories. Um, There are about a million and a half uh, people in prison or jails in the the U.S. We're only a fifth, 5% of the world population, but we are 25% of the world's prison population. We are at a, um, a uh, what shall I say, Uh, uh, we want to punish people. We don't want to help them. And yes, sometimes the words are, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, but that isn't always the norm. And unfortunately, even though the prison populations are dropping in this country at this time, because of the change of the drug laws, we're still up there amongst the highest. In 2021, 49% of the inmates were white, 35% were black, um, and 14% were Latino. 
And I like Native Americans and Pacific Islanders are only about 2% of the total population. And so if you look at those numbers, you see that very disproportionately in terms of the population, Black folks are most likely be, to be the ones in prison. They're 13.6% uh, of the whole population of our country, and yet they're disproportionately represented in prisons. And those of us who work in this field of prison, I call myself an abolitionist, which means that ultimately I do believe that prisons as we know them need to be abolished. In the meantime, you would probably say I'm a pragmatic abolitionist because I work within the system. Some people would say I was a sellout, but at this stage of my life, I want to be helping as much as I can within. But I would argue, as have many scholars, that prisons are a contemporary form of slavery. And if mm -hmm. you ever watch the wonderful film called The 13th by Ava DuVernay, you will see the continuation from slavery through Jim Crow right up to today in terms of the disproportionate numbers of Blacks and people of color who are in prison. And I'm now teaching a course on reparations in order to really address that question because we really see that the history of racism in this country is just continually built on the human capital of Black slaves to this day in terms of uh, the lack of wealth, the lack of education. It's just continued. But that's a whole other lecture. Uh, so basically, it cost $182 billion a year to run prisons that could very well be spent in rehabilitation rather than incarceration. Yeah. That's that's kind of my overview. And I have so much more to say about it, but I really want to get into restorative justice and, and the nature of redemption and transformation in prison. Next slide, please. So a little bit more on history. I just wanted to give you some famous prisons. You know, um, I go to prisons whenever I'm on a tour. I went to South Africa. Some people go, I go to Robben Island where Nelson <laughs> Mandela was incarcerated. When I was in Brazil, I went to a jail. I'm going to Tucson, Arizona to give some talks. I'm going to a prison because I believe that when you take a look at prisons, you see the way we treat the rest of our society. Prisons are the belly of the beast, and they tell you how the rest of us are, uh, or those of us who are on the outside of society are treated or mistreated. And so I lived in upstate New York when the Attica prison uh, riot took place, and that's a, a time in which Nelson Rockefeller sent in the police and, the, and many, many inmates were killed and uh, as were guards and unfortunately there were later lawsuits and it was a it was a guard it was a, a national guard riot that took place in putting down a riot of inmates it was like total war and then of course there's Alcatraz right off of uh, our coast in California where I have also visited and just have seen some of the most horrific cells that I mean just torture cells and dark and dank and 
men in prison today are put in the shoe. People in prison today are put in what's called the shoe, secure housing units, which are uh, tombs. They're locked away behind bars for some people their entire lives. In fact, wow. it's been determined yeah. in courts that that is now uh, completely unjust. But I, I read stories of men, mostly men, locked up in the shoe for 20 to 30 years um, on all kinds of reasons that are justified um, by the prison system. So if you're interested in this field, there is just so much written. I would suggest Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercies, as a, a good beginning, or The 13th, the film by Ava DuVernay, because it really covers this far more in depth than I'm able to do in a slide presentation. Next slide. So of course we have these images of these criminals like Charlie Manson, right? With swastikas and tattoos and, and just being evil human beings. And let me say, I've met some people inside I wouldn't want to meet on the outside. Um, but for the most part, these are not the norm, all right? This is not who I generally have encountered while I've been in prison. Next slide. Then, of course, this middle class, upper class woman who uh, was recently incarcerated and we some of us have been following her case. She helped procure young women for um, Jeffrey Epstein and maybe other well-known characters. Um, so we can see that, yes, there are women in prison and yes, there are white women in prison. My work primarily has been in prisons with men and particularly men of color. And so I'm gonna spend the rest of the slide talking about the images of prisoners that you all have, unless you know somebody, uh, and trying to debunk some of those myths. Next slide. Oops. So the image of criminals, of course, is that they really generate stereotypes. And the stereotype is usually, as we know, a generous generalization about a group of people, but it's often based on ill-informed views. And in fact, that's what I would argue about people who are in prison. The media, of course, portrays them as of lower social classes, less educated, people of color and violence. And that's often our images. Um, and often the media then really portrays these people as villains, as evil, as people that we want to lock away and forget about. How many of you drive by a prison and don't even think about the people who are on the inside? I know before I went to San Quentin, I'd go over the San Rafael Bridge. I'd go, oh, there's San Quentin. Nothing, right. nothing. Now when I drive by, I think of the people that I know, people who've been there for 40 years. I know one mm. guy, I'm gonna tell you a story who's been there for, was in for 42 years. These are human beings locked away. And these negative stereotypes are often applied to young people, particularly those in the urban areas and as those kids who were involved in criminal subcultures, we're just gonna end up in prison anyway, you know? And we know, that because of our failing school systems, because of the 
um, availability of drugs, because of difficulties in families where there's a lot of violence, we see kids end up first in juvie and then heading off into prisons. So mostly we would argue, and I'm one of the critics, that the media focus excessively on these groups to shift the blame from society's problems onto the groups that have the least power. And we create scapegoats in order, to, in order to, divert, to divert attention from other issues of uh, in our society, like poverty and structural inequality. Why are people in prison? They're in prison not because they're evil people. They're in prison for reasons that relate to economics, to family dynamics, to racism to other forms of social inequality. And instead, we blame the victims rather than looking at our social causes. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna tell you about a couple of prisoners so that I can bring this home to you. This young man actually is a, a white uh, Jewish young man because I got to know him inside. Um, and he knew very little about his father who uh, disappeared, uh, but not before the damage was done. Much of his childhood was spent with violence. He was, uh, by the age of three, he had been punched. He was the fourth of seven kids. He had physical and emotional abuse as a kid. He stuttered and his father hated that he stuttered and so he would beat him up. He was called dumb and stupid, but he had many talents. He was a drummer, he could paint, he could draw. He actually became uh, religious when he was a kid. He was looking for some community and drew, walked by a synagogue and joined the service because he was drawn in by the music. Next slide. Um, and he loved very much as a result of having been in the synagogue, uh, being Jewish, but it got taken from him early on. His mother bought a Christmas tree when he was nine and began to call it a Hanukkah bush. And then she soon converted to Mormonism. The older siblings in the house began using drugs and alcohol when he was nine, and it became a flop house for hippies. Um, and uh, he lived in constant fear that his alcoholic father and then his stepfather, who was Mormon, would beat him up. And so John had a childhood of violence. And that, for my own experience in working in prisons, is many, many, many of these men have been beaten as children. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a phrase that many of you know, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. And he was hurt. I have another man I worked with. We called him Black. That was his nickname. He was a very dark African-American man. And he described to me how his father used to not hate him because he was of a darker skin than the rest of the family, used to beat him up. And uh, one day he was in school and he read the wrong um, paragraph the teacher had said to him, you know, to read. 
and uh, Black read the wrong one. And the teacher said, oh, you're so dumb. And the young man, Black, went out and started smashing windows in cars as a result of that moment in the classroom and the abuse in his childhood. And eventually when I met him, he had been in prison for 25 years. He had actually wow. murdered his father. Um, so John, back to John, was living in constant fear of his throughout his childhood. Next slide, please. This is John. Uh, he was a very fine painter when I met him inside. I'll show you some more of his paintings because he uh, there was an art in prison program and he really took advantage of it. He also became an Orthodox Jew while he was in, in prison because he was able to do so with the help of a rabbi. So he came back to his religion. And next slide. Um, he, he, uh, his mother went to work when he was 10 and there were people who were hired to take care of the kids. One of the caretakers sexually assaulted him. Uh, he then went to live with his mother, his family, and they were all Mormons. And so that was the end. There was no more of that Jewish business for me. He said, I was forced to go to church and to seminary. And then by 13, his father had remarried and brought him back, and he went to work with his father and after school. Um, but his step-siblings hated him. And his dad, who was alcoholic, and thus the step-siblings, who hated both him and the father, injected him with LSD twice while he mm. was asleep. So he became target practice with a BB gun, right? And he said... I began to look for fights. I was a vandal. I was filled with rage for everything that had gone on in my childhood. Next slide. Here's some of his art that was done in prison. And you can tell he was pretty good. Every picture that he painted had a bird in it because a bird would be flying to freedom. And that was his image of what he wanted for himself, ultimately. Next slide. That's such a, uh, a sweet image. Yep, they all are. Mm -hmm. So he was quiet. He was a stutterer. He broke windows. He moved around a lot, ran away from home often. And by the eight, between 15 and 18, he lived with his grandparents, which was a little more stable. But then he got his own apartment, he got a job. Um, but by the time he was a late teenager, he'd already been arrested <coughs> for armed robbery with a gun and spent three and a half years with the California Youth Authority. He got out, but as he put it, and these are all his words, by the way. He told me his story, his stories in my book. Uh, he was a ticking time bomb. In his early 20s, he got a job as a paralegal and started to date a woman who had a kid who was 18 months younger, um, 18 months old. And then he loved this child, really loved this child, and he loved having a family. But he didn't know how to control his rage when everything didn't go his way. And so one day, this child, who was now probably almost two, um, was shrieking. 
and he didn't know what to do. So he started to shake the child. And when he got so filled with rage, he threw the child across the room and the kid hit his head and died. Mm. And that was what turned, what sent him to prison. Next slide. This is more of his pictures from inside, more birds. And I'll tell you more about what he was like in prison and his story. Next slide. He told the police he'd wanted to be in a family, but the child just kept rejecting him. And he said to me, I destroyed his life and everyone connected to him. My world changed. The world changed around me. Her world changed. My family changed. My life changed. He was sentenced to 15 to life, which then is considered an indeterminate sentence that 15 would be the minimum and he could come up for uh, a parole hearing. But depending on um, behavior and programming, you could be there for a lot longer. Um, and while he was in prison, he uh, at first he got in trouble. And that's why he ended up doing 32 years in prison. But those 32 years, after a while, he found his religion again. And he began doing repentance. And this is the point that I want to make about everyone that I'm going to talk about. Mm -hmm. There are ways of repenting with a true change of heart, with true remorse and forgiveness for oneself when one comes to terms with what they have done. He said to me, what I've learned in prison is that everyone has value and a spark of divine goodness in them. That spark of holiness obligates me to treat everyone with respect, with love and dignity. And what happened was that in prison, because he ended up really finding himself, he never had an altercation after he began this apprentice, uh, uh, repentance. He never got um, uh, marks or uh I can't remember the term, but there is a term for when you're in prison and you get some uh, problems and you get more time. And after a while, he was a, a role model. He would break up fights in prison. And as a result, actually, when he went up for parole the last time, the parole board said, you're out of here. We don't think you belong here anymore. He told me when I met him, I should never get out of prison, Elaine. I killed a child. I don't deserve to be out there. But the parole board even saw the goodness and the change of his heart and the repentance and the uh, the sense of remorse and, and wanting to make right in the world. So he got out a couple of years ago. I did see him once uh, when I went down to LA. And recently, as I was Googling, I discovered that he had died of cancer after being um, out of prison, maybe about eight to 10 years. He had found a woman, uh, and fell in love, uh, joined a community and felt, um, and did have a good couple of last years doing his art and doing work and being in love. So there isn't a happy ending to this story, but here's a, an insight into somebody who killed a child. 
And we often think, oh my God, you folks who kill children, you're 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 evil, you're demons, you know, you're you should spend the rest of your life in jail. Here's a story about how a guy did it and how he changed his life. Next slide. Yeah, quite a story, I must say. Yep. And I want to show you just a little more of his. And there's his bird seeking freedom. And I'll sort of end his story there. David, do you want to ask or say anything at this point? Or Well, I just wanted to uh, comment about that story that, I mean, you made the point so well that, that uh, nobody's past redemption. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy for us as as uh, mental health professionals to find compassion for somebody like that. Yes, exactly. The word that I often use is no one is as no one is as evil as the worst thing they have ever done. That the worst thing that one has done does not define who we are. Yeah. I mean, each of Thank us. goodness. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I think the stupid things that I have done, the hurtful yeah. things that I have done. Sure, and I don't too. need to be defined by that as these folks have been forever labeled, you know, a murderer. And uh, here are two more of my other friends. And I do call them my friends. I go to weddings, I go to birthday parties, I go to picnics. I feel embraced by the community that I have been working with. They become family to me. I don't have to have the boundaries that I once did when I was a mental health professional. I can yeah, get right. involved with people's lives. So on the left is my friend Marvin. Marvin did, I believe was 42 years for a crime he did not commit. Um, and when I met him, he, uh, the, the warden of San Quentin, uh, introduced me to him. I'd been taken on a tour. And she said to me, uh, I'd like you to meet the mayor of San Quentin. Huh. I said, I thought you were the mayor of San Quentin. <laughs> she said, oh, no, Marvin is. Marvin was the interface between the, the population and the administration. And he was an advocate for everybody. If there was an issue, he'd be in people's faces and get them fixed. Eventually, he actually had uh, was thrown off a tier um, and had to be hospitalized because he had made several enemies. But finally, Santa Clara University found a way to get him exonerated. And he, even though he did 42 years, and now his life is dedicated to elders who are in prison, to prison re re reform, to uh, hospice programs inside. He's he's a, sometimes people would call him a thorn in the side because he's in Sacramento lobbying all the time for prison reform. And the man on the right was one of my uh, students as well. He was in one of my groups and is now out doing restorative justice work as well. So there are two of my friends. I wanna say one other thing. I was once at a picnic in Oakland with a lot of the guys who had gotten out and their wives and their children. And, you know, some of the guys came in with tattoos and some on motorcycles and others, you know, with their families. It was a mixed 
group and I sat down next to a woman and I said, uh, oh, who are you here with? And she pointed to someone I had known in prison. And I said, oh, he's a really nice guy. And she said, oh, yes. San Quentin makes wonderful husbands. <laughs> and I said, what? And she said, oh, they make wonderful husbands. The reason, one, they make their beds, they follow the rules, they know how <laughs> to cook, and they're good in bed because they haven't had sex in a very long time. <laughs> I recommend San Quentin husbands. So uh, there you go. Those of us who know, know there is transmission inside. Wow. Next slide. Yes. That was at a wedding, by the way, of one of our colleagues. So uh, a colleague of mine, John Irwin, who has since passed away, uh, was a prisoner in his youth, eventually got his PhD in sociology, wrote a wonderful book called Lifers that's still in print. And he talks about how there are basically four stages that people who are in prison go through in the process of self-redemption. First, there are the wake awakenings. Uh, and the awakening is the beginning awareness that what they did, well, many people have this before they come in, but often those who don't are not yet really aware of the harm that they have caused. They might know they're in prison and they know that they don't like their lives, but they could be blaming their parents or blaming the victim of the crime or any number of ways of denying their, uh, their culpability. In fact, you can often know when someone has not gotten to awakening when they say, well, I caught a case. It's like catching the flu, right? I caught it from somebody rather than I did it. And so we often confront people when they say, I caught a case with, no, you didn't catch it. You know, you did it. That's why yeah. you're here. Of course, I have to say, I know several men, including uh, Marvin, who I just described, and one that I'm working with now at Pelican Bay, who did not do the crime. And there are many falsely accused people in prison who were incarcerated, some for the rest of their lives, because of either false testimony or any numbers of manipulations that have put them there. But for those who really did the crime, awakening is the beginning of it all. And then once one is beginning to take responsibility, it's very useful to do programming. Some prisons have really good programming. San Quentin has 3,000 volunteers. So they have, you know, dog programs for training dogs and they have gardening and they have self-help and they have education and I mean, any number of programs, art. But many prisons are not as um, sophisticated in terms of programming. So sometimes it's just NA or AA um, or sometimes there's correspondence programs that can take place. So, but the beginning of programming really does make a difference because that's where people begin to look inward at what it is that they did that brought them to this place. How did they harm another person? How did they harm the family of that person? How did they harm their own family as a result of what they've done? And so programming is really key 
to the transformation. Then comes atonement, the real sense that I must do something to make good, make right for what I have done. And I'm gonna describe some of those in a few minutes because I've seen a lot of atonement. And ultimately there is a sense at the end of this process, which it takes a long time of redemption, the sense of I'm transforming myself. I am redeeming myself from the harm that I have caused. I am trying to make it right in any way that I can. I once had a young man say to the father of a young woman that he killed, I, there is nothing that I can do to make right the fact that I caused the death of your daughter. And the father remarkably said, yes, there is. What you can do is never use drugs again so that my daughter's life will never be, will have not been lost in vain. And that young, young man is staying clean and we hope that he will continue. So there is redemption after the atonement. Um, so next slide, I wanna tell you some of these stories. Great. So um, let me say uh, my, my, my transitions have been from teaching to running self-help groups to now doing victim offender dialogues. I felt that each one of them need, I needed to get deeper into the work. Education is wonderful and transformative, but I didn't really hear their stories in depth. Self-help groups were fabulous because people really started to get tools for self-growth. But I wanted to see the actual transformation. So I was lucky enough to, and this is what I do now, volunteer with an organization called AHIMSA, which is a uh, an organization in Berkeley, California that does restorative justice. And what restorative justice says is that the crime is an act against the victim, uh, that crime as an act against the victim shifts the focus to repair the harm that's been committed by against the victim and community. So no longer is it a crime only against the victim, but there's harm that has been done like a, you know, concentric circles. Mm -hmm. And that in order to make any changes, you really have to help work with the person who was did the harm uh, to change and prevent further offending. And you see them not as uh, criminals so much as someone whose work, whose life has to be restored, brought back if you will, to their original goodness, like we all were with ch as we were children. So uh, there's a really uh, interesting process that we engage in. And so generally what happens is I get referrals through a HIMSA from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. We call the victim of the crime because that's the person who has to seek the restorative justice uh, process. We hear from them what happened, the consequences of the crime. And if the person has died, then we talk to the family of the victims about their lives and what's happened to them as a result. Then we go to the prison and we talk to the person who did the crime. 
the person who did the harm. And we ask them, we go in cold. They don't know why we're coming. Mm. And we ask them, would you like to meet with the victim or the victim's family? Generally, and I can say this is probably 98% of the cases I've worked on, they say yes, immediately. And hardened, tough guys with tats and looking like, you know, the stereotypes weep when offered the opportunity to meet with the person that they have harmed or the family. Um, and then we meet for six months, sometimes a year, with the victim to prepare them for what they want. You know, we have to make sure that they're not into um, vindication or uh, hostility or hatred or blaming. It has to be a, a dialogue not an attack. Yeah. And we also have to work with the person who did the harm because they have to take true responsibility and remorse. They have to have true uh, sense of seeking forgiveness. They don't always get forgiveness because that isn't part of the package. But many times people whose families have been hurt do the forgiving. And I'm going to give you some of those cases, as a matter of fact. Um, so uh, here's a couple of the cases. Unless, David, I could stop here and say, is there anything you want to ask me before I, I talk about some cases? Well, this just sounds like such important work, and it's so moving and, and so inspiring. I can understand what draws you to keep doing it. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I would also add, as I am now moving towards the end of my life, it feels like the culmination, the capstone sure. of everything that I've done, coming yeah. out of a Holocaust background, being a teacher, doing, I was a therapist, you know, it feels like, um, I used to think that being a therapist for me didn't feel moving deep enough. I wanted to fix the world. And, and now I know I can't totally fix the world, but I sure can help these families and these individuals heal from traumatic life experiences. So I'm going to tell you about a couple of cases. Um, and of course, I'm being confidential, euphemisms. I don't say where or what. I'm just vaguely telling you the stories. Uh, there was one case in which I was working and a young man was about to get out of prison and a young woman uh, whose mother and sister had been killed in a driving while intoxicated death. death. This woman had gone to school with the man who was driving the car. She was coming home. They were coming home from her bridal shower. He hit them head on and her mother and her sister were killed. She was traumatized. She didn't get married right away. She was injured. She was hospitalized. It took many years for her to finally put herself back together. She did marry the man that she was um, engaged to, ultimately got a wonderful career, had three delightful children. And now we are 20 years later and the young man, who is now in his 30s, is about to get out and come back to the community where she lived. And she did not want to encounter him on the street 
without first having a, a dialogue with him. So we hurried to do this because he was getting out within the next month or two. And um, I went and saw both of them, set up the dialogue, talked to the prison, which is never really easy because you got to get clearance and people have to wear the right clothing. And, you know, going into prison is generally not like going to a rock concert. I mean, it, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's much more rigorous screening and then even the airports. Um, and so um, we finally got clearance. We, I took her into the prison and we went into a cell, you know, that's the size of a, a tiny cell. And there they sat, me and the two of them. And uh, the first thing they did was they shook hands, but then they hugged, which really shocked me. You know, you're hugging the man who killed your mother and your sister. And then they wept in each other's arms. And then they sat down and then they did some small talk, you know, remember when we were in high school and remember so-and-so. And finally, the young man said, you know, I'm getting out soon and I don't know much about the people that I killed. Tell me about your mother and your sister. Mm. And so she spent at least a half an hour talking about her mother and her sister. And then he said, I'm going to be out in a week or two. Could I meet you? And may could we go to the cemetery together? Wow. I want to bring flowers and honor them. I can never undo what I have done, but I need to honor and respect them. They got out. He got out. Uh, and they've been, uh, they did that. And they have periodically been speaking in public together about drunken driving. Wow. And the consequence so yeah. in one session i have to say i was more effective and i didn't do the work they did the work than years of psychotherapy with a victim of a crime like that right. you know maybe you need the therapy to get to this point but um i i felt i as i always do incredibly privileged and honored to be in the presence of remarkable people who are going down into the depth of their pain and connecting with each other. Now, if that's not restorative justice, nothing is. If that's not yeah. redemption, nothing is. If that's not forgiveness, you know, I say to myself, get over it if you're angry at somebody, Elaine. Look at the forgiveness that's taken place here. I've learned so much from watching these people that I try now to always forgive someone or ask for forgiveness. I can be a little edgy and a little sharp-tongued. And now I catch myself when I do it, sometimes beforehand, and apologize because I realized that was unnecessary. And I'm learning it from these folks. Yeah, I've had issues in my family for years. I forgive. You know, they did the best they could. And I have to get over my petty little grievances when mm -hmm. I watch people go through something like this. There was, I'll tell you some more. Uh, I mean, I have cases galore. I'll, I'll talk about the murder of a young woman. Uh, in this case, um, the mother wanted to meet with the man who killed her, her daughter 
to find out what she said as she lay dying. Can you imagine asking, what did my daughter say as she died? And this young man um, wrote a remarkable letter that I, I still quote. It, it's something like, they never met in person, but they did. we did enough prep that they could communicate. And he wrote a letter saying, every day I wake up and I think of her. When I brush my teeth, I think how she cannot brush her teeth. Every day I get up and I live for two people because I killed her. Wow. She'll never have children. You'll never have grandchildren. I honor you and I respect you. I know you can never forgive me, but I want you to know how very sorry I was. I am for what I have done. He was high on methamphetamine and pot and uh, just killed a young woman who he thought was stealing from him. He was a dealer. And, uh, and then it all evolved rather hor horrifically. And um, another case that I'm working on uh, is related to a kidnapping in which a mother and a daughter were kidnapped. Um, and held at gunpoint and now 20 some odd years later one of the young men is out and we had a remarkable victim offender dialogue uh in which uh he read a letter to each of the kidnapped victims apologizing for at such and such a day i held you captive uh, at gunpoint, and for this, I apologize for traumatizing you. For this, I apologize. And it went on. We were in there for seven hours mm. um, with real uh, deep discussion about how did he come to commit this crime? Why did he do it? What was the impact on his family? And his mother and his sister were present for the dialogue, and they talked about the impact on them of his having gone to prison for so long. And the victims of the crime and their support person talked about the consequences of the crime on them and how long it took them to overcome it. And in the end, again, they were hugging. They were promising to see each other again in the future ultimately to work together in some way to carry this message on the road. And finally, I'll tell you about one of the most recent cases. A young woman had been, her father had been stabbed to death 27 years ago. And her entire family hated the man who did the killing. He had been a friend of the family. She went to prison to visit with him not long ago completely forgave him for what he did and is now trying to help him get parole after 27 years because he too has changed his life with a deep sense of remorse and transformation. He's programming. He had been hardcore in prison for many years and as a result of her speaking on his behalf at a parole hearing, He's transformed his life and programming. And by the way, none of these victim offender dialogues go on the record in the prisons. So these folks cannot use this to get points with the parole board. 
This is done of their own volition without record in their parole hearings. They can <sighs> mention it, but it, it it's not of record. So no. um, next slide. Okay. So this is kind of what it looks like. Uh, we sit in a circle. Uh, that's not any one of them that I've done. Um, usually I have to say we have a box of tissues in the middle because everybody's crying. Uh, and I have to admit I cry too because oh, sure. it's just so very touching and powerful. And my job is so easy. I mean, I, I have to prep them. I bring them together. I might set up the process, you know, like who's going to come into the room first who's going to say what first, but then it evolves. It's um, organic and it just plays itself out. And we have stayed long enough to bring in lunch when it was not in a prison. I have heard of prison authorities who bring in ice cream if there's a child in the room doing this process. Um, the prisons are learning about us, they still don't know what to make of us because we're neither fish nor fowl. We're not lawyers. They know how to deal with lawyers. We're not visitors. We're not quite that. So what are we? And so many prisons are learning what we are and how we do this work. But some of them have just bent over backwards to help us make this happen. I have to say, I have a colleague I'm working with at Pelican Bay. You've all heard of Pelican Bay. I couldn't ask for a liaison who is more helpful in facilitating, uh, including during COVID, a Zoom dialogue between the family of the victim and the man who is, I believe, falsely convicted. That's my opinion. In fact, I'm trying to find him some help um, because uh, he's there. He got life without parole plus 11 years being present at a crime in which he did not pull the trigger, he alleges. So uh, next slide. So what is restorative justice? These are very humanistic values. The values are that all human beings are really worthy, everyone, and that we can return to our original purity or, or cleanliness or however you want to see yourself as a person before life hurt you. I mean, I look at the lines on my face and I say every line is something that was an activity in my life. And when you look at little babies, they're still pure, unlined, you know, and you can return to that but having gone through enormous trauma and transformation. You also, I have learned that, that we have to have compassion for our fellow human beings, even the most evil, as we might call them. You know, when I was studying the Holocaust, there was a book, it was called um, Ordinary Men. And it was a story of men who were part of the Einsatz group and the roving killing teams that ran across Europe from the from Germany under Nazi um, the Nazis, uh, who would be killing teams, and they were interviewed 
Battalion 101. They were interviewed after the war and they were ordinary men. They did not start out, start out being killers, but uh, when they got to the war, they were ordered to kill. And when they killed the first time, they were sickened by what they did. Their superiors had to give them alcohol. They had to insist that they do the killing. And eventually they became desensitized to what they had done. And they were afraid of the shame that would come upon them if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Shame from their fellow soldiers, shame from their family because they were honoring the fatherland. And so I understood when I read that book, I had compassion even for someone groups that had killed my grandmother and my uncle and my aunt. It doesn't mean we forget, we'll never forget, but we can forgive if we understand how it happened and why it happened. And if there is true remorse for what one has done. We, and restorative justice believes engaging in loving kindness as we interact with others, which is why I try now to catch myself with my sharp tongue, trying to be loving and kind. And that justice is necessary and not through, just through the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system is adversarial. It sets up the DA and the, prosec the, the prosecutors and the defenders, and they build a case. They don't tell their stories. The victims and the person who's accused can never look at each other or talk to each other. The victim can read a statement, but the person who did the crime is not, has been often been told, do not turn around and do not make a statement because it can hurt you. And so that's a, a system that is not humane. It doesn't allow for direct communication. We learn in restorative justice that all human beings are quite unique and that each one is formed by the various experiences that they've had and that in order to restore them to who they were, we have to understand what happened to them and why they became who they became that we must be thoughtful in the words that we speak. Don't just blurt out any stupidity without thinking ahead of time. And that we must care for those among us who are our strangers. And who could be stranger in all of this than the person who killed someone in your family? They are the other. And yet here we are in restorative justice, making every effort to care for the very person who did the most harm to you. It's a remarkable experience. David, do you want to ask me anything about this? We can move on. I have more to say. Really, if there's more to say, I'll let you say it. I, I do have some comments, but I'll wait till you're done saying okay, what I'm you want to say. At the end. Sure. <laughs> okay. Next slide. So I just wanted to talk about organizations in case any of you would like to get involved in this. There are college education programs um, and there are only 27% of the states offer such. Without a high school education, there's a 60% recidivism rate. With a college education, there's only a 19% recidivism rate. 
And that's just community college. We're not even talking about four-year colleges. So if we had more education in prisons, we would really see transformation taking place through education. I love it when I'm in the classroom, watching the bulbs go on and people making the connections and helping each other. You see inmate helping inmate, they become a, a cohort, a class. They become your students. They don't become prisoners or criminals. Next slide. So there are also uh, other programs inside and I'm just uh, naming a couple. There's victim offender education groups in which a, uh, this one's through the Insight Prison Project in California. But there are many programs like this in which a trained volunteer as well as a prisoner peer facilitator meet for 18 months to understand themselves better, how their life experiences and decisions got them there, and how the crimes impacted their themselves and the families. And the purpose of the training is to help them understand and take responsibility for the crimes that they have committed. And then ultimately, after the 18 months, they meet with the victims for a healing dialogue. And often it is not the victim of their own crime. This is more a group experience, but victims of crimes that are similar so that the person who did the crime can hear from another sexual assault victim what it's like to have been victimized. And so uh, there's ways of helping out and running groups inside. Every state in this country has restorative justice programs. So one just has to Google them, restorative justice uh, Boston, restorative justice uh, Oakland, there's plenty there. And, and there are ways of getting involved. And if you don't wanna do any of this stuff, just learn about it, read about it, learn about prisoners. Don't drive by the prison that you go by and forget about those people. Remember, there is humanity behind those walls. Next slide. So let me just say as my conclusion, working in prisons is the best work I've ever done in my life. That there is a humanity inside. It's like becoming a family inside when you get to know the guys. That prisons are not humane and it's very hard to change within them. I would say that people change in spite of the system, not because of it. That folks inside are just like us. They are not the most awful thing that you, they have ever done. And I urge you to volunteer or work with people inside, become an abolitionist and change the nature of the criminal injustice system because I don't see it as just at all. And then my final slide, If you want to talk to me, first of all, check out my website. Uh, it's got a lot of this stuff on there. I just wrote an article called Healing the Healer about how this work has transformed my own um, sense of well-being and healing myself. And you can also reach me at leaderatsonoma.edu. I would love to hear from people who are interested in what I've had to say. So that's my spiel. And what a good spiel it has been. 
I'm going to turn. So um, uh, this is such uh, inspirational work that you've Thanks. described to us, and uh, uh, it's just it's a wonderful work. A couple of questions that came up in my mind was, uh, you said it's like each time you, it, it's a challenge to uh, to persuade the, the prisons that you you know you go in and you're, you're some kind of odd duck that they don't understand. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, though, you make it sound like there's really a lot of uh, growth in this area, volunteer organizations and so on. So it sounds like there's a real movement there. Of well said. I would say yes. The uh, actually California Department of Corrections, which is the state that I'm working in. Um, now, always has had a victim services, and now they have these victim offender dialogues as part of the services to be offered to victims of crimes. They're not very well publicized here in California, but should they hear of them, uh, it's now coming from the top. And because it comes from the top, each prison must accommodate us. And we're not fish nor fowl because they're not sure what yet to do with us. But as they learn, they get better and better. So I have to say, I've gone to California Correctional Institution in Tehachapi a number of times. That's been remarkable. I mean, they meet us at the gate. They give us water. They, you know, they're they're welcoming. They come afterwards to hear. They can't hear details. They They are grateful. They follow up. They're lovely. Um, you know, uh, as I said, Pelican Bay, my uh, liaison there gets it. He wants this to keep happening. And so, yeah. uh, yes, and the movement is growing. Restorative justice is pretty much in every straight state in the union. And it it's not just in prisons. It's in high schools and elementary schools. And I have a friend who's working with district attorneys helping them do restorative justice in their communities rather than going to court. And so I would say restorative justice, you know, it, it's becoming part of the mainstream. It's just not as far as it can go. And those of us who are also abolitionists would say, well, you're just tinkering with the system. You're not making it any better. You're fixing it within. And I would say, yes, we're probably putting Band-Aids on cancers. But at least, you know, the people who have the cancer are feeling better until such time as we truly fix this criminal injustice system. Have you had any opportunities to speak to uh, organizations of people who run prisons to sort of... No, to... That's, I, I'd love to. I've not been there, so there, there must be such organizations, such oh, yes. associations. Uh, oh, yeah. I have a colleague who used to teach in the criminal justice department who goes out and teaches wardens. And, you know, it's a good idea. I should get in touch with him and ask to come along for some of his trainings and get myself into that <laughs> community. Right now, yeah. excuse me, I'm work, work mostly your podcast. I'm going to churches and synagogues and community cent centers. I have fortunately received a grant from an organization to 
do these talks for the next year. So maybe I'm taking the low hanging fruit to yeah. begin with. I should be yeah. going for yeah. some of the harder organizations. One other question in your, in your uh, prison tourism uh, going around. I'm embarrassed by that. Ha, well, have, have you been to Scandinavia to look at, you know, we've heard stories that, uh, at least in some Scandinavian countries, that there's a different attitude. I've read about them. I've not visited. Um, um, Israel is actually surprisingly, given the politics, are pretty good too. Scandinavia too. They have dormitories. They don't have cell blocks. Right. They have education. They have family visits where people can come in and spend, you know, days together. We don't do any of that except here and there. You have family visits. Mostly it's in the visiting rooms that are chaotic. Um, so there are different models to incarceration. I mean, I don't believe in incarceration. I believe in rehabilitation. Yeah. But yes, there are better models than we have. I think we are, are a barbarian society as in terms of how we treat our prisoners. Well, I wish you a Scandinavian vacation <laughs> of prison tourism, and uh, hopefully that, that will be in your future, uh, because it sounds like you would make the most of it. Well, but let me have a caveat there. I don't want to be a warrior in other people's pain. Uh-huh, so right, of course. Tourism has, you know, it's kind of like going to slave plantations. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you yeah. Know? It's it, there. It's a mixed bag. I want to know so I can know what's better, and I want to know because I want to know what's worse. But Good I don't point. where you're on people's pain. Yeah. Good points. Well, I'm so proud to have you as a colleague, and uh, you know, and to uh, see, hear about, and and see these wonderful changes in yourself. Uh, uh, not that I ever experienced you as a toxic person, but but by your own report here, you know, it sounds like it's been a remarkable spiritual experience for you. And I want to thank you for sharing them with us on Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you, David. It's been an honor once again to work with you. I never cease to be amazed to discover how little I know about people I think I really know. My recent guest, Dr. Elaine Leader, is a perfect example of this. We've probably known each other for 20 years or so, inasmuch as she was the dean of the School of Social Sciences at Sonoma State University, where I taught psychology for so many years. Actually, Dean Leader, as she was officially known, came on board during the years I was department chair. So, in a sense, she was my boss, except she didn't come off as bossy. In fact, I became a confidant, and she credited me then and now with helping her to learn the ropes in running the weekly department chair's meetings. She even invited me to visit her at home, where we shared libations and let down our hair. 
I knew she had a degree in social work and had done some work in that field before coming to Sonoma. More recently, I learned that she had been doing volunteer teaching at San Quentin. I was gobsmacked to learn in our interview that her prison activism goes all the way back to 1995. Plus, I didn't realize the impact on her of having lost family in the Holocaust or the extent to which Jewish values came to permeate her work. And, she, and as she describes it, and I agree, these Jewish values really are very much humanistic values. So you don't have to be Jewish to subscribe to them. I was also struck by the depth of her prison work, which evolved from teaching standard college courses through stages to spending intensive amounts of time meeting prisoners and getting to know them deeply to leading reconciliation programs that bring victims and the perpetrators together. She describes all of this in moving detail and with great passion. We come to see that this is deeply spiritual work and she shares how it has impacted her personally. If you've only listened to the audio podcast and you feel touched by this presentation, let me suggest you find the version on YouTube where you can see the images in her slide presentation. For more information, she also invites you to contact her at leader at sonoma.edu or at www.elaineleader.com, and leader is spelled L-E-E-D-E-R. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Jason. I want to say thank you. Your program has been a wonderful resource for me, getting to hear from people of diverse backgrounds, beliefs, and practices. Robert Hedaya in particular resonates with me. Also Richard Katz, Monica Wickman, Alexander Schester, just to name some. But really the stories and insights shared by you and all of your guests, as well as hearing from supporters, have all been gifts. So thank you to all of you. The lessons and practices I've learned from research and teachers, as well as powerful experiences, have been integral in my own path uh, through anxiety and depression and unveiling the mystery that is myself and the conditions within and around me. And I've decided it would be most meaningful for me to help others in their healing, growth, and transformation to become truer versions of themselves and find meaning in their lives. So I've made it my intention to apply to graduate school and become a therapist. And part of that intention is giving back to those who support me. So thank you for the insights and the guidance. So I don't have much in the way of monetary resources. I decided that it's important for me to support you in Shrink Rap Radio. So to any of your listeners considering making a contribution, I encourage you to do so and would ask how much you are willing to expend on a good book or making a nice meal for a loved one. Dr. Dave, your openness, curiosity, and humility come through in your talks, and I appreciate the gifts you bring me and others through the work you do. Thank you. Thank you, James, for your moving message. Thanks for becoming a financial donor and encouraging others to follow suit. I'd like to hear from more of you listeners. I assume you know that I produce a monthly newsletter, and at the end of each one, I like to highlight comments about a recent interview. However, I've not been getting any or many <laughs> comments lately, 
If you hear something that touches you, please take on take the time to go to that interview on shrinkwrapradio.com and you'll see an area right below that interview where you can post your comments. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thank you to friend and colleague Elaine Leader for the very moving presentation on her experiences as a prison volunteer and activist for many years. So inspiring. My guests next week will be Greg Marr, M.D., and Chris Drake, M.D., authors of The Wisdom of Dreams, Science, Synchronicity, and the Language of the Soul. They integrate Jungian depth psychology with modern sleep science. Their book is a unique collaboration between a prominent sleep scientist and a psychiatrist with knowledge of Jungian depth psychology. Well, you know, you folks, you regular listeners know I eat that stuff up. So you want to be sure to be there. Until then, this is Dr. Dave recommending you be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.